comes to read to us from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 9. Mark 10, verses 1 to 9. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. As Martha just read for us in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus left the region of Capernaum in Galilee. He was up in the north end of the country, near the sea, and he went south. He went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him. So it's worth noticing as we're going through this passage that what Jesus is teaching about in the next several verses is not necessarily what he intended to teach to the people when he went down into that region. But the Pharisees came up in order to test him. That was their whole purpose. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And we know that this sort of thing happened on several occasions during Jesus' incarnation and ministry. In Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And on the occasion in John 8, when the scribes and Pharisees brought him a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery, we're told again that they did this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Of course, one of the most obvious examples of Jesus being tested was when he went into the wilderness for 40 days after his baptism to be tested, to be tempted by Satan during that time. And it would have been well for the scribes and Pharisees and others who sought to test him during his life to remember the scripture that Jesus said to the devil on that occasion, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what I'm trying to get across here is that when we encounter these times when Jesus is being tested by various people who've come up to ask questions, we need to remember exactly what's happening and the dynamics that would have existed between Jesus and these people. They did not come with genuine questions looking for genuine answers. They came to try to trap Jesus in his words. Again, consider for just a moment one of the most prominent examples in this genre, Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22, where we are told, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They actually went out and had a little committee meeting 
to decide how best to get Jesus trapped in his own words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So they come to Jesus with this pillow, as it were, flattery. We know that you are deeply concerned for the truth and that you teach the word of God that way and you're not swayed by appearances. And then the punch, tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And again, remember, these disciples who were sent by the Pharisees were not looking for an honest answer to that question. They didn't need one. They already knew what their masters believed and taught. The Pharisees had no trouble at all rendering to Caesar the things that were Caesar's. That was kind of their whole thing. Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, was more than ready to sacrifice Jesus himself and offer the Son of God up to Caesar as a sacrifice as a matter of simple expedience. The whole situation in this text has been manufactured to entangle Jesus in his words. We need to remember that when we hear their question. We need to remember that when we hear Jesus' answer. That's why in this passage in Matthew 22, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And he said that before he answered their question. And then he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, which again, they had no problem with that part. But what caught them off guard was the second half, and to God the things that are God's. And that's a sermon for a whole other time. But there's a similar dynamic here in our text in Mark 10 this morning. Here we read again, they came to him to test him. And they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And that framing, is it lawful, is something that will come up in numerous versions of this where they're attempting, attempting to entrap him. According to Matthew, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce one's wife for any cause? Which is a little bit different question, but it really doesn't matter at all. They weren't asking. They weren't interested in what Jesus had to say on this. They were testing. They were trying to entangle him in his words, and he knew it. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so in the next verse, Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? Which makes perfect sense. They knew what the law said, and he knew that they knew what the law said, and they knew that he knew that they knew. So they replied, and accurately enough, at least accurately enough for Jesus to spring their own trap on them, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away which indeed Moses did. But listen to Jesus' reply as he comes back at them in this test that they're sending. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. As one pastor that I'm familiar with said, and all God's people said, ouch, 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 ouch. So they wanted to entrap him. They wanted to maybe get him to say something that was contrary to the law of Moses or even the law of Caesar. 
And instead of being able to entrap him in this, they ended up entrapped themselves. Jesus, who knew God's law much better than they did, after all, his father wrote it, ended up telling them in effect, yes, yes, Moses said, you can give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. You know the letter of the law, but clearly you don't understand the spirit or the purpose of the law. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 8. In our text, which Martha read for us just a few minutes ago, we find it in verses 5 and 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Jesus was saying, in effect, yes, there is a law that permits divorce under certain circumstances because there were limits on that even in the Old Testament. He's saying people are sinful and sin needs to be regulated by law. But then Jesus goes on to say that before sin, there was an order to creation that makes clear that this is not how it was meant to be. Before the law, there was a norm established by God from the beginning of creation that could not be changed or undone by the fall. See, metaphysics, and that's a strange, unusual word for us these days, but just talks about the concept of being, what something is in its nature. Being, the nature of the created thing, precedes ethics. And we see that in what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here. God did not create the man and the woman, male and female, independently of one another, and then suddenly, somewhere about sundown on the seventh day, as the seventh day was beginning, God looked down and he said, what a fortuitous coincidence. That man and that woman, they just sort of go together, don't they? That's, that's nice. That works pretty well. It's not how it happened. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. By the way, the words male and female here are a different Greek word that's very specific to this passage and also in the Septuagint to the passage where God created them male and female in the book of Genesis. Jesus is quoting here from Genesis, which is part of that law that his father gave to the people through Moses. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, for this reason, because God's purpose for humanity was baked into the way that he made the people who would carry his image, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So this business of marriage and sexuality was not just a happy accident. This was and is God's good order for the world that he made. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man, as in created humanity, created mankind in his own image. In the image of God created he him, mankind again, Male and female, he created them. 
So we have one people, one race, humankind, and we have two sexes, male and female. This is the foundation for the creational norm that precedes the law, and not only that, it is a physical reality and biological necessity. Because the very next words recorded in Genesis, again, that book that God gave to his people through Moses, are, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And when we addressed this before, we noted that the wording of this creational blessing has to include the woman as well as the man. Being fruitful and multiplying was never something that Adam was going to do alone. And for the same reason, there are two sexes, just two, and they were made to complement each other. They were made to fit together and to work together in such a way that in the ordinary course of events we would come from Genesis chapters 2 and 3 to Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, so named because she would be the mother of all living. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with help of the Lord. The word Cain in Hebrew sounds like the word gotten. Um, I have gotten a man with help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. The prophet Malachi was referring to this aspect of the creation of mankind, this built-in idea that man and woman together bearing the image of God would be fruitful and multiply when he wrote, did, not, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What was his point for doing that? godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Which is what Jesus was saying too when he referred to the creational norm in Mark 10 verses 8 and 9. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What God has therefore joined together let not, not man separate. And see how being Proceeds ethics here. The Pharisees came asking Jesus a question about the law. And Jesus said, well, yeah, what did Moses say? You know the law. But then he pointed them to a reality that had been established from the beginning of creation. And the law of God, which came later and was added because of transgressions, according to Paul, did not change or set aside God's order and purpose in creation. And if the law of God could not set aside God's purpose and order in creation, then all the laws and lawlessness of man cannot do so either. In fact, as Isaiah wrote, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, of course, and this should go without saying, but it probably doesn't, none of this is to say or even to imply that marriage with or without children is in some sense a prerequisite to bearing the image of God or that that's the only way to live for his glory. It's possible 
to glorify God in marriage as God ordained it between a man and a woman covenanted together for life. It's equally possible to glorify God in singleness. I don't have time to deal with those texts today. But it's quite possible, and God has given that gift to some people. I should also add that it's possible to not glorify God, both in marriage and in singlenesses. In singleness, there are marriages that do not glorify God. There are people who are living single lives that are not glorifying God. But those are the only two biblical categories. God's gift of sexuality was given to unite a man and a woman as one flesh with a portion of the spirit in their union, according to his word in the prophet Malachi. Outside of such a union, human sexuality is disordered and broken and leads to judgment. Now, sadly, our culture has spent the last six decades, believe it or not, in thrall to a so-called sexual revolution that has been busy throughout that time calling evil good and more recently calling good evil. But God's word stands. All forms of sexual immorality, fornication, pornea, as the Greek word has it, including those forms that were named in the Human Sexuality Report that was accepted by the Synod of the Christian Reformed Church this past June, namely premarital sex, extramarital sex, adultery, pornography, polyamory, and homosexual sex, all of these and many, many others that could have been named are contrary to both God's law and to God's good order in creation. We have to hold to the word and let it speak and let the lordship of Christ over every part of our life, including our sexuality, be the controlling factor. Even so, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. The Greek word there is pornea. It's a very generic word that refers to all kinds of sexual immorality, not to any specific thing. Some of you have heard me say that the problem I had with the HSR, the Human Sexuality Report back in June, was that by defining things in the negative, there's always something else that needs to be dealt with. So what we're trying to do when we look at the word is see what is God's definition? How does this work? What is God's good order? And then to say flee from everything else. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Hear that statement. Those of us who have come up within the Christian Reformed Church or other Reformed churches who are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism should not be shocked by this. But the Apostle Paul says, you are not your own. You are not the boss of you. For you were bought with a price. 
the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed for you like a lamb without spot or blemish. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And I think the implications of that are clear in the context here. Paul begins the statement, flee from sexual immorality, and he ends it, glorify God in your body. And this is the message this morning. As Christians, we are called to glorify God, not just with our heart and soul and spirit in those ethereal ways that are not always that obvious. We are called to glorify God with our bodies and with our behaviors. Seeking to entrap Jesus, the Pharisees came to him with a disingenuous question about the law. And sometimes it's easy for us to kind of get caught up in that sort of dispute. Well, what's the law say on these things? But Jesus didn't even engage with these people at that level. Instead, without nullifying the law in any way, without saying, don't even worry about the law, says, let's just be concerned with something that's more spiritual and and invisible, Jesus pointed them and us to the truth on which the law was founded. For from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, for that reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. That's God's definition of marriage. A man and a woman united in covenant till death do them part. And that's the context of God's good order for human sexuality. That's where that gift is to be found and to be exercised within the context of marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And in that light may we flee as Paul exhorts us, from sexual immorality of all kinds. One aspect to the discussion around the Human Sexuality Report at Synod was that it tended to focus on a very narrow band, very narrow spectrum within that wider report. And anyone who had a lick of sense knew that if you wanted to talk to the largest group of people within the Christian Reformed Church or any church these days who are going to be impacted by that report, you needed to be talking about pornography. Because that's probably the widest spread since undoubtedly the widest spread of these sexual sins that were dealt with in that report. But all of them, every last one, is something that we need to flee. We need to flee from sexual immorality and we need to set our sights on the lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of our lives. And I want to be clear, we do not do this so that we can be saved by works. We can't. We flee immorality and we submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ, not so that we can be saved, but because we have been. 
For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. But we should never read verses 8 and 9 without verse 10, which gives us the purpose of salvation by grace through faith, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, which God before ordained, one translation has it, that we should walk in them. All of that is to say you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Even so, glorify God in your body.